But now we're going to continue in our sermon series on the book of Revelation. So why don't we give our attention to the reading of God's word. Our reading this morning is from the book of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Father, we we come before you and your holy word this morning. We ask that your Spirit would teach us and lead us into all truth, your truth, your holiness. No one needs to hear from me this morning, but what we all need is to hear from you and encounter the beauty and the glory of our Lord Jesus and all that he has accomplished and all that he wants for us. And help us to connect to that this morning. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You know, before I get into the sermon, I want to say thank you to many of you who sent uh, emails and texts of condolences uh, as Tim Keller has passed this week. For those of you who don't know Tim, um, he's a pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, uh, mentor, um, someone in, if you think about it this way, has a connection to this church because this church really wouldn't be here without him. The founding pastor of our church was... Uh, a friend of ours is, uh, who was also on staff at Redeemer. So it feels like in many ways we lost kind of a, a family member this week as David and I were reflecting this week. So thank you for all of you who sent notes of uh, condolences. Um, and we all continue to pray for the Keller family. But as we get into this passage this morning, uh, Revelation. Uh, it's a book given by the risen Christ himself who comes to the apostle John in a vision. And in his vision, the resurrected Christ is in the midst among the seven golden lampstands, which represent seven churches in Asia Minor. And Jesus tells John to write down my words and send this out to the churches. This is in chapter 1, verse 11. And this is one of those really unique things about the book of Revelation. 
It is Jesus himself, himself speaking directly to the communities he left behind. These churches uh, that are in danger in one way or another of losing their character as communities that are meant to reflect and live out the good news and the beauty of the gospel. They were lampstands who were in danger of losing their light. And I want us to go back and think about this image again of the lampstands for a second. We did this a few weeks ago, but I think it's been so helpful for me. I just want to review this with you. Because we have to ask the question, what is the role of the church that is represented by lampstands? What is, it, what is the church meant to be? Jesus actually mentioned lampstands in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And he said this in verse 14 and following. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I mean, the image Jesus paints here in the Sermon on the Mount is the Christian community, the church is meant to be this warm, welcoming, inviting, and distinctive community that gives glory to God because it points people to the beauty of all that Christ has done and who God is. These are the communities that Jesus left behind that are meant to be a light in a very dark world. Communities that embody the gospel, which connect people to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus himself. And this is what the church is meant to be. So for the first, uh, church in the first century, Thyatira, they are meant to be a light that invites that city to see and experience the gospel of Jesus. Now, what do we know about this city, Thyatira? It's the smallest of the seven that we're going to be looking at in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. It was just a small city on the road from Pergamum to Sardis, and it wasn't an influential city. It wasn't like Pergamum, which is like D.C., or Ephesus, which was like the big, sprawling metropolis, kind of like New York. But Jesus has the most to say to this church in this small town. It is the longest letter of the seven. Thyatira was a blue-collar town, an industrial and manufacturing center. You may know of one of the most famous uh, residents of Thyatira, one of the first converts we read about in the book of Acts, a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple cloths. Thyatira was known not only for their textiles, but they were also known for their bronze work, and hence this image of Jesus with bronze feet. But here's the thing you need to know about the city. The Roman government didn't really enforce emperor worship but the trade guilds, man, the business community, they dominated the city. They ran everything. So that meant it was dominated by trade, by business. They ruled the city. And here, Jesus says some really, really encouraging things in verse 19 about this church. Look at the commendations here. It says, I know your works. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance 
and that your latter works exceed the first. I mean, here are the ways they're being a light to the world, right? He commends them for their love, faith, their ministry, their perseverance. If you think about the church in Ephesus, they had all the doctrine and they lacked love. And Jesus says, this church has a lot of love. Pergamum. I mean, you, you think about all these churches, you think about, start thinking about Thyatira, and Jesus is saying, you guys are loving. You guys are growing in faith and in ministry. And I love what he says at the end. You are doing more now than you did at first. The latter works exceed the first. Did you catch that? It's got a lot going for it. We always want more than what we started with, right? So it was growing. The ministry is expanding. It's a dynamic kind of church. This is the kind of church that if you had to move to Thyatira for work or school and you sent out your email asking, you know, do you know of a good church in the area? Everybody's going to say, go to the church in Thyatira. It's a good church, good preaching, lots of activity and ministry, people coming to faith, wonderful community. They're involved in caring for the poor and for others, vibrant and growing. Now, does that mean all was well? By no means. Because the picture we have of Jesus here in verse 18 is one who has eyes like a flame of fire. Did you catch that? His eyes are literally piercing. He can see past the slick website. He sees past all the ministries that are listed in the glossy brochures. He sees beyond all of that to see who really is there and what is actually going on. It is penetrating the gaze of Jesus. He said, put all that aside. I see you. I see you. Jesus also describes himself as one whose feet are like burnished bronze. Maybe in an age of steel, bronze doesn't sound very impressive to us, okay? Um, But bronze was known as something strong and powerful at that time. And Jesus lists this because he's saying those who refuse to repent and change, he's going to crush with his feet of judgment. Why? Because he sees what is going on here. I mean, what is missing in this church? Let's think about that for a second. What is missing in this church at Thyatira? Because they seem to have most of the things that you would add, you know, when you start checking off all the things that are good about a church. It's like, yes, yes, yes. But why the harsh words? Because there's one thing they're missing in the life of this church. And it is a commitment to living a holy life. A holy life. Now, I think holiness is often a misunderstood term. Because holiness isn't about ceasing to exist as part of the culture where you just hide and just abstain from things. Maybe when you think of holiness, you think of, ah, joylessness, okay? No fun. But to be holy literally means to be set apart. The church is called to be a light shining in the darkness by being a distinctive community that reflects the character of God himself. It's to be set apart. And when you begin to consider the gospel and what God has said he has done, it really focuses on the idea of making us holy. We're told it was the Father who chose us actually for holiness. Have you thought about that? 
Our God wants to dwell with us, be with us. But He is holy. And unless we are holy, we cannot dwell with Him. So what does He do? So the Father chose us in Christ before creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. That's what the Scripture says. And when the Bible talks about the work of Jesus, what does it say? In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. It says Jesus died to purify us, meaning make us holy. And when the Bible talks about what the Holy Spirit does, once again, holiness is central. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects the instruction, this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we're reminded of these very powerful words that ring throughout the Old Testament. But it says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God calls you and saves you so that you will be holy. Yes, going to heaven, that's the thing too. But don't forget, the church is to be a place that is set apart and devoted to God. We are people who are supposed to be distinct in a beautiful way so that people can look into this community and say, you know what? God himself resides here. There is something different. There is something distinct. There's something beautiful about it. So what is the problem in this church at Thyatira? The problem is this woman, Jezebel. Let's talk about this. You know, this is likely not the name of the actual person, okay? You don't go through the baby naming book and look at the meaning and origin of that name, and you choose and name the child Jezebel. You know, it's one of those names, okay? It's loaded with meaning and significance. It's like Babylon or Balaam, all right? So if you're named Jezebel, I didn't mean that as a swipe. But seriously, in the scriptures, it's a nickname, a notorious one at that. And whoever this woman is in this church at Thyatira, she is likened to Jezebel. Now that means we need to ask ourselves, who is Jezebel? Because she lived a thousand years before the letter was written. She was the daughter of Ethbal, a priest of Baal, who also became king of Sidon and Tyre. And Baal was a pretty terrible religion. It was a wicked religion. And at the center of Baal worship was not just idolatry, but immorality. And in order to spread this religion, King Ethbal made an alliance with Israel and married off his daughter, Jezebel, who is also a priestess to Ahab, a king of Israel. He was one of the really bad kings in the history of Israel, okay? And if you read this story in 1 Kings 16 and following, Jezebel introduces 
an infection that finds its way into the bloodstream of the nation of Israel. She brings in hundreds of prophets of Baal into Israel, adds their salary and benefits to the royal budget. Okay, the people of Israel are paying for them. And then they start seeking out the prophets of God, those loyal to Yahweh. And they begin to put them to death systematically. So when you read about how the prophet Elijah ran into hiding, okay, it was because of Jezebel and the prophets of Baal who wanted him dead. But remember how God dealt with this whole story? With all this? Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal in one of the most uh, famous stories in the Old Testament on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. They build an altar and they say, you know what? The first God who brings fire down and consumes this thing, we know he is God. So what does God do? He rains down fire from heaven. Baal does nothing. And after God proves he's the real God, not Baal, you know what happens? The people of Israel go out and slay the prophets of Baal. Now, what happened to this woman, Jezebel? Well, eventually God brings judgment upon her. And you read about that in 2 Kings chapter 9. As Jehu throws her from a high tower to the ground, and we are told all these wild dogs come and eat her body except for her hands, her feet, and her head. And the idea in the text is that even wild dogs wouldn't eat her wicked hands or her wicked feet, and the dogs wouldn't even eat her face. She's a villain in the Old Testament, and she was a hated individual. Now, do you see, when Jesus says in verse 20, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, it's not anything flattering, okay? He's saying there is someone in your congregation who is actively undermining God's truth, and that is what you're tolerating in the church. Because rather than encouraging people to turn to God in repentance and faith, she was encouraging unholiness while claiming to speak for God. This is what is referred to in verse 20 where it says she calls herself a prophetess. That is, she claims to speak God's truth. She is teaching and seducing people with a lie about the gospel. And Jesus says, why is the church tolerating this? Because he sees past all the lies, the deception with his eyes that are like fire. Well, what is it about Jezebel? Well, in Thyatira, there are similar temptations as in Israel. Remember I mentioned the trade guilds? This was the center of power. This was the center of the community in Thyatira. Textile industry, dyeing of cloth, bronze industry, whatever it is, whatever trade you were a part of, at the center of that business was an idol they worshipped. If you wanted to make a deal for a larger order, if you wanted to advance in your career, if you wanted to actually be a part of this community, I mean, there was pressure to participate in idol worship and say, hey, give us a good year here. Make our business prosper. And along with that, they would sacrifice idols, have a feast, and it would often lead to debauchery. There was a lot of rationalization for the Thyatiran Christians to listen to this person, Jezebel, who was teaching. In verse 20 and 24, we see that. 
that this was a good thing. She's saying, this is what God wants for you. He wants you to be successful. And did Jesus not forgive you for your sins? Sin has no power to condemn us. We are now free in Jesus. I can do what I want. No restrictions. No moral boundaries. And that's what Jezebel was teaching. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. Did you hear that? As strongly as Jesus talks about her, our Lord is patient and wants Jezebel to return to him. He's waiting to forgive her, embrace her. He's a God who is patient, but she puts out the hand she refuses. So he is bringing judgment on her and her followers. And when Jesus says, which sounds really harsh here, I will strike her children dead in verse 23, scholars believe this is referring not to her literal children, but all her minions. You know, those devoted to her and her teaching, those not devoted to Christ, but telling people, hey, this is the way you live your Christian life. Do this. And Jesus is saying, I am passionate about my church. My bride, I am passionate to make her beautiful, holy, and a light to the nations. Friends, this is, this is heavy stuff. I mean, I've been, my knees have been knocking, thinking about how am I going to talk to you guys about this, but I want you to understand what Jesus is saying here. But what do we learn here? What do we learn in this story and in this letter? The first thing I want you to take away from this, and I think we need to be reminded, is Jesus says holiness is possible. Why would he ask the church to do this if he didn't think this is possible? He's saying, don't forget, being set apart is a reality. You can be devoted in such a way to honor God. It is possible to be holy. Jesus wouldn't give us an impossible task. If you are in Christ Jesus, he's saying, holiness is possible in our lives. That's a hopeful message. You know, for all of us who feel like nothing ever changes in our lives, Jesus is saying, you should expect the gospel to be at work in you. It doesn't mean holiness comes all at once. It doesn't mean you'll no longer sin in this life. But we are to expect the fruit of the Spirit to grow in our lives. Because those who have been, belong, those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have been crucified in the flesh with its passions and desires. That's what it says in Galatians 5.24. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are a new creation. A holy nation. He's saying this is possible. And let me ask you this. Do you actually expect this in your life? Do you really expect that God will do this? I mean, so what if the church you're a part of is growing and you're leading a Bible study and serving in various ways like those in Thyatira? How are we doing living a holy life before God? Do we expect that God's going to show up in this way? Do we long for this? Do we want this? 
Or do we just acquiesce to the culture and the world around us? We are called to this hope that change is possible. And Jesus says, you know how you do that? He says, repent. I'm waiting. I want to forgive you. I want to embrace you. That's the first thing I want you to uh, take away from this. The second thing I think we begin to understand is we ourselves cannot manufacture holiness. Holiness is challenging. And we cannot manufacture it. You can't just come up with a standard and do a checklist. This is essentially what the Pharisees did, was it not? They were the religious leaders who were the holiness police in the New Testament. And when they saw decadence coming through the culture and the people, you know what they said? Man, we got to tighten things up here. Uh, we got to come up with rules to kind of specify because I think people don't really know the Bible. So we're going to make this a little harder. So anything that's ambiguous, we'll add on a few more things. And Jesus said, you know, about the Pharisees, he said, they have loaded men's backs with weights. They put weights on people's shoulders. They came up with new rules and saying, this is how you keep yourself holy. And notice in verse 24, what it says here in our passage. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, meaning what Jezebel was teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not lay on you any other burden. Did you see that? Do not lay on you. I do not lay on you any other burden. Jesus doesn't give more rules, right? He's not into some military lifestyle here. But what is he encouraging us to do? He's saying, hold on to the gospel. In this teaching, there's this idea that you had seen the freedom. If you had seen the freedom you already had in Christ the freedom to keep his commandments, you would not be infected so you can barely breathe now by the weight of the law. Holiness is not by, doesn't come by just like creating more standards and trying to climb the ladder higher and higher. Jesus says, hold on to what you already have. This becomes a really important part here. And that's the second thing I want us to remember Holiness is not anything you can manufacture. It comes to us through the person of Jesus. He makes us holy. He makes us whole. He makes his church holy. And as we look to him and all that he has done, and our hearts are so filled with the beauty and the wonder and the glory of who he is, my goodness, we begin to say, you know what, Lord Jesus, man, I want to please you. I want to be like you. I want to give all of myself to you in devotion so that other people can see what you've done in my life. And look at our God who has come to us because he so wants to dwell with us. And he loves us. And you begin to see this is not something you create in yourself, but it's something God does. You can't manufacture holiness, my friends, but it comes from a deeper abiding in Jesus. And the last thing is this. Holiness, holiness is a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift that comes from God. The freedom of holiness is also a gift. Look at verses 25 to 28. Only hold fast 
what you have until I come. What is the thing we're supposed to hang on to? It's something Jesus has given us. Okay? He's given us himself. And then he goes on to say, the one who conquers and who keeps my works, his works, okay? Not our works, his works, until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule with them with a rod of iron. So when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He's saying, here's the promise. Man, if you hang on to what I did, if you hold on to this until I come, man, you know what's going to happen? You are going to reign. If you hang on to the gifts that I give you, one day you're going to reign. What is this authority over the nations? All these scholars have written volumes and volumes on it. And basically, from what I can gather, no one really knows. That's, that's the conclusion I came to this week. Yeah, it has a reference to Psalm 2. We don't know what this actually means, but we do know we're going to reign with him. How's that going to work out? I have no idea. But I'm so curious to know. And he says, this is a metaphor. Jesus is going to be everything to us. And we are going to be everything we were meant to be. To be this idea of reigning. To be exalted to the highest position. How do you do this? By holding on to what Jesus has given us. By being holy. It's an image that should bring up images of joy, celebration. No longer being a slave to sin. You have been set free. The temptations that trip you up will no longer have influence and sway over you. And all of this ruling over Goodness, all of sin is going to be defeated and you're going to rule over this. We often think of holiness as this thing that's drab and dull. But don't forget what C.S. Lewis said years ago in Letters to an American Lady. He says this, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets a real thing, it is irresistible. Because holiness is a philosophy of life that begins to change everything because it celebrates actually humanity. It's the Pharisees who look at things like literature, art, sex, pleasure, and say, that's all bad, you know? Stay away from those things. Holy people don't look at the world that way. Holy people look at the world and say, these things are gifts from God. We are to honor them, celebrate them. And there's nothing worse than seeing something so beautiful defaced. Holiness means you celebrate life because you've been free to celebrate it. And nothing horrifies you more than see it distorted and defaced. See? The last part of this is interesting. Verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. You know, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus says this at the end of the book, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is giving us what? Himself. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, I will give you the morning star? 
Why is this to be an encouragement to us? You know, I think this is where the Wizard of Oz actually helps us to make sense of what Jesus is getting at. Do you remember in the book or in the movie, you have all of the characters, Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Cowardly Lion. And at the end of the story, what were they given by the wizard? Think about this for a second. All of them were given something they already possessed, but they didn't know they had it. Remember the scarecrow? He wanted a brain, but he was actually pretty smart. So what did the wizard give him? An honorary degree, right? He publicly recognized what he already possessed. Tin Man, he wanted a heart. Boy, but throughout the story, he demonstrated he had more heart than anybody when he was given a public recognition of what he already possessed. What was it, that silly heart-shaped clock thing? Do you remember that? And how about the cowardly lion? He wanted courage in his whole life. And the wizard said, you already possess this. All I need to do is recognize it publicly with a medal. And if anyone had room to be upset in the story, it's probably Dorothy. She wanted to go home to Kansas. And the whole time she was wearing the ruby slippers, right? And the wizard tells her, you have everything you need right on your feet. All you needed to do was click your heels and he would take you home. So when Jesus says at the beginning of Revelations, I will give you the morning star. And we know at the end of Revelation, he himself is the morning star. What does that mean? It just means that someday it will just be pronounced that we have the morning star. Jesus says, I will make known what you already possess. You possess me. All the benefits of the gospel, you have it now. He's saying, you know, look at what I've given you. Focus on this. Focus on my works. Don't worry about trying to check off all the boxes. You want to get on the path to holiness? Think about what I've given you, what I've called you to. You reflect on that. And he will be faithful. And how does he close the letter? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for the incredible gifts that your Lord, that our Lord Jesus has given to us to make us into a holy people. It's not something we can do on our own, but it's through his life, his death, and his resurrection, you have made us a people for yourself. And Father, help us not to forget this, Help us to set aside all the distractions around us that clamor for our attention and help us to focus on this one thing, which is how do I become a person who loves you, honors you, and pleases you? We pray that you would make us a holy people who is distinctive and beautiful so they would come into this community and give praise and glory to you, our God, in heaven. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.